morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Mark, and uh, this is the second week of going through the six symbols of the gospel. Pastor Dan told you last week that I was nervous, and, and I was, and, uh, but this week I'm back to my old self. So I'm not nervous. I'm happy to be here. I was happy last week too, but just uh, just uh, excited about going into what uh, I believe God had placed in my heart and, and John Bickley's heart uh, when we put together this book is we're going through this journey together. Just a reminder that uh, what you hold in your hand, if you're holding one of the books, it's a pre-release copy for, for our church, and my hope is through the conversations that we're having through growth groups and, and just other uh, kind of discussions that we'll be able to refine it and before the, the final release goes out that your guys' fingerprints will be on it as well. So uh, last week we talked about uh, the introduction and why uh, we're going through this series and just how I really believe that there's a gospel deficiency and just really it's time that we as, as the people of God, those of us who are followers of Christ, uh, have a handle on the whole gospel. And then we talked a, a lot about the Old Testament, the story of Israel, and, and specifically really looking at some of the promises uh, in the Old Testament, specifically uh, the first giving of the, the good news, the gospel, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have the blessing that, G, uh, that God tells uh, Adam and Eve that, that He will send uh, someone to bring restoration. So this week, we're going to be talking about the life of Christ and what that means. And to start our time together, I wanted to read a quote uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, one of my favorite theologians, out of his book, Life Together, the book uh, the prayer book of the Bible. It is not that God's help and presence must still be proved in our life. Rather, God's presence and help has been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to Israel in God's Son, Jesus Christ, than, discover, than to discover what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. The Cairo, uh, which is the uh, symbol that we're going to be looking at today, it looks like an X and a P that have been superimposed over one another, is one of actually the oldest uh, symbols in Christianity, that it was uh, made popular by Constantine when he claimed he had a vision um, of Jesus Christ and the chi and the rho, which represents the first two letters in Christ's name in the, in, in the Greek language, that, that Christ would help him uh, in him being an emperor and, and conquering. And this symbol uh, really lost popularity for, uh, for, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, but we've seen kind of a resurgency in it in, in 21st century Christians, uh, a lot of 
a lot of uh, younger people like to get the Cairo as a, as a tattoo, so you probably see it more on skin than you see it really anywhere else. Just kind of a, a, a side note about the Cairo, and this is just coming out of the Christmas season that, that we have just gone through, that uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, Christians, get upset when they, they see the X in the Mass, and, and, and they you know, don't take the Christ out of Christmas. But that's actually, it's not, a, it's not an X, it's a Chi, and, it, and it's just shorthand for for uh, Christ. So there, when people did that, you know, and there's all the cultural stuff, but originally they were putting the Kai back in Christmas. They weren't really taking Christ out of Christmas. That has nothing to do with anything, but just thought I'd let you know for next Christmas so you're not irritated when you see it, even though somebody may have done it to irritate you. So the, uh, the, the question, you know, why did Jesus live? is one of the, the most difficult questions for a soterian or a salvationist that we talked about last week, a salvationist, um, uh, to answer. Remember, we talked about soterianism, and we talked about uh, how uh, the theologian uh, Scott McKnight uh, essentially said that many Christian churches have created a salvation culture and mistakenly labeled it a gospel culture. And the reality is for a Solterian, for a Salvationist, just thinking that the only reason for Jesus' existence was to die on the cross, that his life is a very difficult thing to explain. Like, why? Why didn't Jesus just come to die? Why did he come to live? And the reality is that as we look at, at the life of Christ, for those of us who are people of the gospel, that the life of Christ is essential. The life of Christ teaches us how to live in this world, but not of this world. In the life of Christ, we see Christ going to parties and, and, and glorifying God through His life. We see uh, Christ interaction, interacting with religious bullies, but... but honoring Christ, that we see Christ confronting injustice while honoring God. And I think this question, um, why Jesus came to live, uh, seemingly is a, is a topic of great theological debate, but I really don't think it is, because I think Jesus is very specific uh, in his words of why he came. In fact, seven different times he tells us, this is why I came. This is why I came to live and not just to die. And the reality is, no matter what you think about Jesus or Christianity or something, that, that if anybody should be an authority on why they came, it should be the person who came, right? Like, one question that I ask a lot, because I meet a lot of people who are new to Tallahassee, is why did you come to Tallahassee? I met somebody in the previous gathering. They said, I'm brand new to Tallahassee. I said, why did you come to Tallahassee? Why did I ask them and I didn't ask Michael? Because Michael doesn't know. He may have a good guess, you know, oh, government worker, going to school, you know, or, or, or something, but he would have been wrong. She said that she came because her husband got a job 
here in Tallahassee, and that is why I came. And I thought, okay, good. We could all, you know, spend all day trying to discuss it, but she just very plainly, plainly said, no, there, there's one reason I came to Tallahassee, and that one reason was my husband got a job. Otherwise, I would not be here. I was thinking about this for my own life. Why did I come to Tallahassee? And, and specifically, there are three reasons why I came to Tallahassee. There are three reasons why I came here. First was to start a church that encouraged people to relentlessly follow Jesus, to allow people to follow Jesus in the wide open spaces of grace, and not to have to leave the 21st century to do so. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I came. The, the other one was I felt that God called me to lead a church that made, matured, and mobilized fully devoted followers of Christ. And then the final reason is that I wanted to be a blessing to Tallahassee and through our church and through my own activities, be a blessing to this, to this the Tallahassee community, and also be a blessing to the world. Now, that's why I came. Now, you can decide for yourself if I've wasted the your time and my time for the last 10 years. But, but those are the specific reasons why I came. And similarly, uh, Jesus is that clear. You know, you can think, I think Jesus came for this reason. I think, or I don't know why Jesus, but Jesus tells us seven different ways in different times through Scripture. The first one is fulfillment, which uh, fulfillment of what? Fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, the story of Israel, which we spent talking about last week. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says this, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Now, just to point out, Jesus is making very clear that He is the Messiah here, that He is coming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, that He is the blessing amongst the curse, that, that He is here not to abolish the law, but to accomplish their purpose. But let's be honest, the, the laws of, Mo, of Moses uh, that uh, the, law, the, the law of Moses uh, can be very difficult. There's, there's not a week that goes by, honestly, that somebody doesn't ask me about some obscure uh, law, you know, one of the 613 laws of Moses. They usually have to do with earrings or tattoos. We just came through the Christmas season, so I got questions about Christmas trees and all sorts of stuff like this, Right? And it can be very difficult for people to understand that. And, and uh, the reality is that the most significant question that I am asked is this, really. This is what people are trying to get to. Do I need to adhere to the Old Testament law? Do I need to adhere to that? And, and I'll explain and go into this more next week in, in the cross, but, but, but I think it's the, the easiest way, just really simplistically, to understand the laws of Moses and really any biblical uh, Scripture is to ask a question of it. Asking a question in its cultural context, how did this begin, build, or restore a right relationship with God or people? 
I mean, it's more complex than that, but also, I mean, that's a great starting point. And really, when you look at the life of Christ and you look at the laws of Moses, that, that those were given, all these laws were how to begin, build, or restore a right relationship with God or having a right relationship with people. Now, um, I'm going to give a pitch for a, a class that I'm teaching in, in the spring here. Uh, it's a quip class called, uh, it's hermeneutics, which is a fancy seminary word for basically how to interpret Scripture. I've been threatening for years to teach this class, and I finally uh, said I'm going to teach it. And it's one of those, like, I went through seminary, and honestly, most of the classes were, well, whatever. But this one class, I was like, wow, this is such an important class. Like, it, it really changed how I... I viewed Scripture and, and interpreted Scripture and things like that. So be looking for that class. But, but at its basis, really this question, how do I, how does it begin, how does it build, or how does it restore having a right relationship with people? And then ultimately, Paul tells us why the law was given. The law was not given as 613 steps to self-realized holiness, Right? I mean, it wasn't like a really long sermon, just like step number one to make yourself perfect in the sight of God. Step number two, step number three. No, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul writes that ultimately the law was given to show us that we can't make in ourselves a right relationship with God and right relationship with God, uh, people, that we cannot within ourselves, make everything okay. So that's the first reason that Jesus came to live, was to fulfill the promises made to the people of Israel. The next one is service. And this is found in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, when Jesus said, "'For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give His life as a ransom for many.'" I'm always struck by the humility of this statement. Here you have the creator of the universe, Jesus, the Savior of the world, and, and He's saying, you know what, I didn't come for you to put me on a pedestal and to serve me, but I came to serve you. That I, I came to serve as a ransom for many. And you know, when I, when I think about, about this statement and I'm like, well, yes, this, this is true. But there's the other thing is Jesus was not opposed to being served, right? I mean, we, we saw Him being served uh, when the woman anointed Him with perfume and, and, and cleaned His feet uh, with, with the tears of His eyes. But that wasn't the reason that He came. And this idea that ultimately it was because of John chapter 12, verse 27, that He came to be a service and give payment for what happened in Genesis. And that's the third one is this payment is, um, and we get the context of when He's talking with Andrew and Philip about, about the inevitability of Him going to be crucified. One of the more, most horrific uh, uh, capital punishment that human beings have ever come up with. And this is what Jesus said. 
in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Why was Jesus deeply troubled? Was Jesus deeply troubled because he knew the reality of crucifixion? He knew the reality of what he was going to come up against? I don't think so. And let me tell you why. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, we are told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that word in your Bible, that word, word, a little confusing, right, is logos. The Greek is logos. And that is a direct reference to Jesus. That's what John is writing. In the beginning was Jesus. And this idea, this understanding that, that Jesus, for, every, for eternity previous up to this moment, he had been in perfect community with God the Father, God the Son, or God the, God the Spirit, and Himself. Perfect community, holy community without any imperfection. And when Jesus was going to the cross, and again next week we're going to talk a lot more about this, but what He was going to do was going to bring on our transgressions to bring on our, our, um, our sin and become unholy. By doing so. And what is unholy cannot be part of what is holy. And perhaps why Jesus was so troubled was he understood the reality that what was about to happen was that the perfect community that he has always known, that he was about to willingly be separated and isolated from it. And I believe that is what was deeply troubling of his soul. Number four is Jesus came to be a light in the darkness. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And the reality is light makes its biggest impact in the dark, right? Like again... We just went through the Christmas season. How many people went and drove around and and looked at Christmas lights? How many people, while just driving around, saw a Christmas light and commented? Okay. I will guarantee you, when you took your family out to go look at the Christmas lights, or you just happened to comment on some Christmas lights, it was at nighttime. Because nobody drives around and looks at Christmas lights at 11 a.m. Coming up to 4th of July. If you're going to go look at fireworks. If somebody advertises a firework display at 1 p.m., you're probably not going to go. Because they could shoot up the most beautiful... What do you call that? Firework, thank you. The most beautiful firework. Probably is called that. And if it's light out, you're not going to get any ooh or ah. 
you just be like, that was a waste of money, <laughs> right? Because light makes its biggest impact in the dark. And Jesus came to illuminate our path. This is really, I mean, you think about the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus live? Jesus lived to show us how to be a light in the darkness, how to bring justice in an unjust world, how to be an advocate for the voiceless, how to uh, interact with religious bullies, how to be, you know, love in, in a world of hate, how to be a light in the darkness. In John chapter 12 and verse 46, Jesus says this, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. And this scripture is one of the main uh, uh, reasons behind why we give everyone who's baptized at E3 one of those big old candles. Our church as a gift gives everyone being baptized one of these candles. And these candles, uh, what they're meant to represent at our church is um, we give this candle that, that is perfectly designed to give off light, right? There's nothing wrong with, with a candle. It might not be the most efficient thing in the world. It might be dangerous and all that. But besides that, you know, a candle has everything it needs to give out light except what? Light, fire. And so we give them this, this candle and this idea that, that, you know what, a candle fulfills its purpose when it is given light by someone else, by something else, and it illuminates. And that's the beauty. And then we ask the person being baptized, who in, you know, who in your life has been instrumental in sharing their light with you? And they name somebody, and we applaud because that's such a cool thing. And they come up, and they, they light their candle, and it illuminates the room. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And that is kind of the, the living example of why Jesus came. The fifth one is to break the caste. Now, I don't know if you know what the caste system is in India. It's one of the most egregious uh, systems uh, that is still kind of prevalent in, in uh, the world. And essentially, uh, the caste system, basically whatever s kind of uh, situation you're born into as a, as a servant or, or, you know, a ditch digger or whatever, that's who you are. That is what your whole identity is wrapped up uh, in, and you have no value outside of that. Maybe a more current example is Downton Abbey. My wife and I love to watch Downton Abbey. Anybody here watch Downton Abbey? More of you than that watch Downton Abbey. But I know, and if I am admitting I'm watching Downton Abbey, you can too. Be bold and courageous. But, but one thing that really strikes me about Downton Abbey is this. How proud each level of people in Downton Abbey are that they're not like the other once. Uh, that the aristocrats are proud that they're not servants. The head butler is so proud that he's not a valet. The, the valet is so proud that he's not a footman. Does any of this make any sense to people who don't watch Downton Abbey? Yeah. I mean, basically, that, that they're like, well, you know, I may not be an aristocrat, but I am the head butler, and at least I'm not 
you know, the valet and, and stuff like that. And it just goes downhill. And Jesus comes and says, that's all bunk. That's a California, Southern California word, bunk. Like those are bunk waves, dude. Let me translate it. I don't know. Uh, lousy. It's no good. <laughs> that, that Jesus says, you know what, this whole, this whole caste system this, this, of, of your value is based on your position is, is ridiculous. That, that I am coming to bust that all apart and to say, you know what, you matter to God. And if you follow me, that there is no, you do not have a place, that there is no Jew or Gentile or woman or man or slave or free, but you are all precious in God's sight. And that, you know what, you have all been called to be a light in the darkness and to invite and include others. Jesus, uh, in this idea of breaking the caste, that the religious rulers of the day, the religious bullies of the day, ask the question, why does your teacher eat with such scum? In the earlier gathering, that why was what? It wrote, read, what does your teacher eat with such scum? I don't know what goes well with scum. I don't know what the proper wine pairing is with scum, uh, but why, you know, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love, you know, Jesus' stories when He is showing us how to confront religious bullies. I encounter them all the time. I don't know about you. And, and, you know, they condemn, they say, you know, this, this, and they take these kind of these, these half-truths and, and stuff like that. And how did Jesus confront religious bullies? He quoted Scripture. He said, you know what? You're giving me these half-truths. You're giving me this, you know, this, 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 this version of, of what you think the truth is, you know, layered with your culture and layered with your society and layered with your sin nature, let me take you back to the Word of God. Let me take you back and just say, you know what? I want you to go back to the Scripture and learn the meaning of this. This is how you deal with religious bullies. When they're elevating one tiny part of Scripture, you take them back to the Word of God and you say, look at the context of this. You don't think I should be eating with scum? Maybe you need to read your Bible. You think that this person will never amount to anything? Well, let me tell you something. God promised in Genesis 15 with a promise in the midst of a curse that He does care about them. 
and does love them and wants to be in community with them. And they are not scum. They are children of God. The sixth one is invitation. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 38, Jesus said this, We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That's why I came. So, what exactly did Jesus preach? Well, Jesus really in His life and His preaching, what we learn in Jesus' life, that He didn't come to perpetuate a certain political or religious or social system. He turned all of those things on their head. That, that He ate with the people that He wasn't meant to eat with. He hung out with the people He wasn't meant to hang out with. He called people to be followers of Him that, that everyone else had disregarded as, as, as just kind of like losers. That He said, you know what? You're not what your profession is. You're not just this. You're not just that. You're, you, all of these things that society has called you, you are none of those things. You are beloved. You are precious that you have so much value that I, the Son of God, left perfect community to give my life for a ransom so that you could come back to the ideal state that you can be in harmony once again with God and others and creation. And the final the final uh, reason that Jesus said He came is clarity. Clarity is a difficult thing. We see it all the time. People don't like to be clear, clear because clarity causes conflict. I see it all the time in our, in our context with um, when engagements are announced. Like, we all like to think when engagement is announced, everybody's like, oh, that's so wonderful. And, and they're going to, you know, I wish the best. For, this is what we say, but this is not what a lot of people feel. Here's the reality. And I get it. I get it all the time. It's like, I can't believe that those two people are going to get married. Do you, do you know that that guy in junior high took my milk money? You just don't change from stuff like that. I, I, you get stuff like this, that somebody's wronged somebody a long time ago, or, or they dated the wrong person, or, or this. And, you know, you want to bring some, you know, some clarity. You say, you know what, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, and this person wants to spend the rest of their life with me. And all of a sudden, you're put on display that people make judgments about that. I know we're not meant to, but it happens. You know, the, the girl that you, know, that you broke her heart in high school has been holding off or holding out, you know, that, that statement, she's like, oh, I guess I got to move on. Yes, you do. You know, uh, it, you know it, it brings clarity. It brings the opportunity for conflict. And 
In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus, uh, in, in context of his life and, and his ministry, uh, he says a very difficult statement. And the statement is this. He said, don't imagine I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Many people have a very difficult time with this statement in particular. It's hard because it doesn't line up with our 21st century kind of uh, hippie love Jesus, right? Because Jesus, Jesus is meant to be about peace, man. You're like, I didn't come to bring peace, but a, a sword? What's he talking about here? And what he's talking about is clarity. What he's talking about is when he said, I, I am Emmanuel, I am God with us. That, that you know what, when he made statements like, like, you know what, no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are clarifying statements. Now, that statement, I believe, has been perverted by a lot of people because of a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying there. So it's kind of ironic that he's being clear, but people uh, are unclear on what he is saying. See, what people are, think they hear when Jesus said, I am the way to the Father, is I am your ticket into heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you got to go through me. I am the gatekeeper. But that's not what Jesus is saying. You see, again, the biblical understanding of heaven is the unfettered presence of God. Who is God? God is relationship. Who is God in relationship with Himself? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus said in other statements, if if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what he's saying is, you know what? I am heaven. Being in my presence, the unfettered presence, and, and, and being in perfect harmony with me, your creator and creation, is this idea of heaven. I often think that, that when people ask me, Mark, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? That question to me always just, it, it, it irritates me, and not for what you probably think. It irritates me because that person is bought into a destination gospel, that you either go to heaven or you go to hell, and they've missed the relational aspect of it, that, you know what? God is inviting you to be in His presence forever. I often tell people, you know what, if you don't like Jesus, you don't want to go to heaven. Because that's what heaven is, is the unfettered presence of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. It would be like you came to me and said, Mark, I heard you talking about, you know, you enjoying this restaurant where, you know, there's great vegan steak and, and uh, you know, I know what I said. I was just 
seeing if you're paying attention. And, you know, and, you know all of this kind of stuff. And, and I want to go to that, that restaurant and, 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 and see, you know, and, and be with you at the, at the table and, and have you order for me so I can make sure that I get everything that you like. There's just one thing. Do you need to be there? It makes no sense. You just said you want to go to the restaurant with me, that you want me to order for you. You want to eat the vegan beef. You want to do all this stuff. But you don't want me to be there? And that's the same thing that people are saying. It's like, I, I want to go to heaven. But I just don't want to deal with Jesus. It makes no sense. And what Jesus does is bring clarity, much like a wedding or an engagement, and especially a wedding. It's like, you know what? We are making a statement before God and our friends that this is a commitment to one another. And those of us who are baptized and those of us who are followers of Christ are making a commitment that our lives and our hope is based in that someday I will be in the unfettered presence of God. Finally, the, just wrapping up, Jesus' life taught us how to be a transformed, just kind of illuminating uh, focus in this world, that we are to be people of life, that Jesus' life can be very difficult to interpret outside of the story of Israel because you don't understand why he interacted with different people the way he did. You don't understand necessarily why he told the certain stories that he did. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and to allow us to live in those wide open spaces of grace. That that. Jesus came to live and not just to die, to teach us how to live in this world, to how to interact with people who don't share our faith, to, to able to interact with religious bullies, to, to know how to, to love one another, how to be justice, how to be hope, how to be light. In this world.